This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everybody. It's my Dharma family in the room. Um, Abbot David and Tanto Nancy, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak um, to address the assembly. Thank you so much. And I want to um, I want to honor you who are here. I mean, I see people who I have known for my entire adult life, like senior Dharma teacher Paul from my practice life, like Jose Prieto. Uh, we were at Tassajara together about a million years ago. Like my first student, Don, um, who um, taught me how to teach and to um, my current Dharma family, my Jiko Benjamin, who cannot be here to hold the incense or flowers and so on. And I want to thank you for being here online as you have been for the last year and a half. Or for uh, coming here today, maybe for the first time. Now, I want to say that I haven't been feeling well and have an emergency. I will ask Abbot David and Tanto Nancy to, um, you know, just take up some discussion um, if I have to have a brief absence. So um, uh, thank you for being with, uh, thank, thanks everybody for being with me in this uh, state. So uh, today I want to talk about something important and um, important and urgent. So there are things that are unimportant. There are things that are important, but not urgent. There are things that are urgent, but not important. And there are things that are important and urgent. And what I want to talk about today is important and urgent but also if we rush with it, um, it won't get properly done. And that is practice. <laughs> okay, so practice is important and urgent. And if we, if we rush or if we don't do it, it won't get properly done. And, um, that just seems so simple and stupid to say, so simplistic. So like, why would anybody even say that? I want to say it because it's a feature of our um, life of studying the human condition that we sometimes tend to ignore or spiritually bypass. So we t sometimes we don't practice or we don't do what we have to do because it seems like other things are more urgent or more important than doing this. 
doing what we have to do. And it's also hard to discern what we have to do. A lot of times it's hard to discern what we must do, what we must do. Uh, I, I, uh, when, uh, starting when I was ordained um, in uh, January of 1982, I've been visiting people who are sick or dying. And there are two things that they want. I sometimes, I sometimes say, well, what is it that you wish for right now? What is it that you need right now? And the first thing that most people say is an ordinary day. I want to walk the dog. I want to go shopping. I want to run the vacuum cleaner. I want to darn my socks. I want to play with my grandkids or have an, have a, an ordinary day with my significant other. So they'll say things like that. And the other thing that they'll say is, you know, I never realized what was important until today. So many other things seemed important. I never realized what was really important. So I want to talk about realizing what's important and urgent as the fourth turning of the Dharma wheel. Okay, I think I better explain what the turnings of the Dharma wheel are. Um, excuse me, for some people, this is a repetition because you've been taking Fu's class and you've been studying this in other ways. I hope it's okay with you if I just quickly go over what the turnings of the Dharma wheel are and why I am saying that doing what's urgent and important might end up being the fourth turning. So um, you all know the story of the Buddha and how um, the Buddha um, realized that the human condition was the most important thing that he needed to um, study, practice and fathom in this life uh, to help himself and to help everybody else. Um, the Buddha saw uh, the Buddha had been kept away from all kind of suffering and distress. He was a child of privilege. And um, the idea was that he was going to be a king. Um, his, his parents did not want him for his father. And uh, stepmother did not want him to be a great sage, which was the other possibility, uh, according to the astrologers. They wanted him to be a king. Um, so as a sheltered young boy um, or young man uh, coming into manhood, he, um, he saw a sick person on the street. He saw an old person on the street. He saw a dying person on the street. And then he saw a monk on the street. And so the first three, um, he asked about, does, every, does this happen to everybody? And the answer came back, yes ordinary people understood this, but he hadn't yet understood this. And then he saw a monk and, and um, realized that there were people who were interested in fathoming the nature of human life. So he did. 
And after a lot of trials and tribulations and um, mistakes, he realized um, the first, he realized um, awakening and brought forth the first turning of the wheel at Deer Park in um, Sarnath. There's a wonderful um, stupa there uh, that shows where this happened. And so um, he realized that the basis of suffering is that when we think that when we identify with what's not self, when we rely on what's impermanent, and when we're when we fantasize about what's real, that inevitably will suffer. And that this happens all the time because that's what people do. And uh, not only it's, is it what people do, it's how we're built. So we're genetically programmed and our senses are programmed to do this. And so at, uh, at that time he taught the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and he began the teachings which would later be collected as sutras or direct teachings as Abhidharma or um, the um, teachings about psychology and perception and karma and how we uh, transcend it. And what would be known as the Vinaya or the rules for how monastics and practitioners needed to live together and function in the world. So he deconstructed the self. That was the first turning of the wheel and deconstructed the idea of permanence, deconstructed the idea of reality and um, left these teachings, which people then started to practice first turning. But over time, people being what we are, even those teachings got reified and turned into doctrines and so the second turning of the wheel is um, given in the Heart Sutra that's chanted in temples every day, uh, which deconstructs the deconstruction. Okay. And says that all of those things, that uh, all of those categories into which human existence and the world were divided for the purpose of not thinking of them as the self, as permanent or as real that all of those things are actually shunya. So the English translation of shunya is empty, but maybe a better translation of shunya is full, full of potential, full of not knowing, full of the um, opportunity for curiosity rather than empty, which we have connotations of voidness when we think of the word empty but emptied out of own being, emptied out of permanence, emptied out of reality. So the, the medicine is also, um, you know, nothing to be kind of held onto and relied on or thought of as permanent or real. And we say that in the Heart Sutra every day. But over time, um, uh, the, the teachings, the original teachings uh, began to be distorted. The original teachings about the um, deconstructions of the self and everything began to be distorted and people began to have disagreements about them. Some of those disagreements lasted for thousands of years. And so the third turning of the wheel came into being, which was supposed to be a definitive analysis 
of what's real, what's true, what's permanent, what is the self. And it's taught um, in a sutra called the Sandhi Nirmochana Sutra. The uh, school that it's uh, that teaches about it is called Yogacara. Um, and the uh, it introduced new ways of thinking about um, the self and how the self um, comes into being as a functional entity, like we need a self to function in the world, but we can't rely on it too much. So needing it and having it is called conventional truth. Um, not relying on it or having it be um, a, a, a Dharma gate for inquiry or study is called ultimate truth, that ability that there's always more or always always more than what we think or who we are, always more than that. And then the ability to act appro appropriately or respond appropriately to the world is called skillful truth. So those are three truths, or um, I would not necessarily call them truths, I would call them reality or spheres, reality, realities or spheres. Um, you can call them truth, but that might sound like it's either true or false. So, but I more think of them as spheres in which we, um, in which we uh, operate, in which we, in which we can function uh, for our the development of our own heart and mind, and to help the people who we're with. So. I think of ultimate, relative, and skillful as arenas of um, dharma functioning. And so it's really, it's really, really important to uh, understand that I don't, I'm not denying the validity of any of the teachings. As a matter of fact, I rely on the validity of the teachings. But I also feel like the teachings have to keep um, developing and questioning themselves, ourselves, or uh, they'll become dead. We need to keep the teachings alive. So it's not like Tinkerbell, where we can keep them alive just by clapping. We need to keep them alive by uh, applying them to um, our own experience and seeing if they're true applying them accurately. So not, uh, not um, kind of uh, just uh, giving ourselves the cliff notes version and applying that, but actually studying the real teachings um, so much that they like come out of our ears and our fingertips and then applying them to our lives and seeing if they're really true or not true in our own lives. And then through the process of actually testing out those teachings to allow them to inform our heart and as well as our mind to inform our emotional lives and how we are. Keith, am I, am I speaking okay? Keith, um, can you, um, can you, can, uh, is it coming across in the transcript? Give me a chat if it isn't okay. So um, 
So what I want to say is that uh, we've got a problem in that um, when Buddhism got transmitted to the West, um, it got transmitted to people who already had all of our own uh, different habits of thought and habits of action, individually, interpersonally, collectively, and structurally. And these individual, interpersonal, collective, and systemic um, spheres that the Dharma got transmitted into are actually selves for us. They're selves and they're sticky like, uh, like uh, ideas of self that we would glom onto. And like, I'm a this, I'm not a that. Don't talk to me that way. I'm this way, not that way. Don't, don't even go there with me. Is uh, shows an assumption that the self is real. It's a defense. Whereas the Dharma teaches us to have boundaries between ourselves and others, not defenses. Not defenses that push out what we don't think is um, us, but boundaries of... Um, okay, let's see, I have this heritage or this history. So when you speak to me this way, it hurts me. Would you please um, know that about me and use your, um, um, use your uh, discernment or discretion knowing that I'm vulnerable in this particular place? So that's a difference between a defense and a boundary, which we can have at any level. And in the West, we tend to have focused on the individual defenses a lot more than we focused on interpersonal, um, institutional, systemic, or cultural defenses. But right now during COVID, when everything's raw and being exposed, is a time when our, um, our uh, institutional, our systemic, our cultural defenses are being exposed. And particularly the defenses against people who have, uh, against systems that have the means to uphold those defenses are being exposed. Okay, so um, I, I could say more about that or try to prove my point, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to put that out there, even though it's an unsubstantiated statement. So please uh, feel free to uh, challenge it because, you know, I could be completely wrong. Okay. So what I propose is the fourth turning. It, it comes from a restatement of that problem of, of defense. To say that, um, and, and I wanna go all the way back to one of the Buddha's um, original Vinaya teachings about Parajika offenses. So there are various levels of offenses in the Vinaya, which was the rule for how monks live together and practice. So the Vinaya set a container in which um, the individual practitioner wouldn't have to worry about the ethics of their daily life. Daily life was based on gratitude or offering and daily life was based on, so, so based on receiving, uh, giving and 
kindness and daily life was also based on the progressive ability to concentrate and realize the truth of human existence and, and how to deal with it, what to do about it. And so there were various levels of offenses and how the Buddha dealt with them was by having people get together every two weeks and talk about their rules and how they had um, either omitted or um, offended against those particular uh, boundaries that the community had set. So that's how the Buddha dealt with it. So there were special rules for women, which I hope can, you know, over time we can examine this in our tradition and so on. Many special rules for women based on the uh, culture of the time. And, um, but basically that was the practice every two weeks. And we still do this. We still do this upasata um, uh, ceremony. You know, we, uh, we do this um, as uh, Ryaka Fusats or the full moon ceremony that we do once a month where we say the Bodhisattva precepts, the Bodhisattva precepts are the um, kind of um, condensed version of the precepts that um, was established about a thousand years ago that um, we um, transmit and um, follow today and we support each other to follow them. And all of San Francisco Zen Center and its 70 odd affiliated groups are organized not only around Zazen, but around the precepts so that we can all support each other worldwide to, um, to, um, to care about, for instance, whether uh, we're really taking refuge in awakeness or something else, for instance, whether we're really um, committed to not harming or whether we aren't <laughs> in, in. So, so we do this every two weeks. But there were some offenses called parajika, which means um, uh, completely uh, defeated. Uh, they make the person who commits those defenses completely, those offenses completely defeated, which means that that person has to disrobe and can't be a monastic anymore with the community. So there's parajika offenses. And so, um, you know, when we think about those offenses in today's world, we generally focus on the three most dramatic ones for us, which are murder, um, stealing, and um, sexual practices. So those are the ones that people mostly remember. But there's a fourth parajika offense. And that is to falsely claim insight that you don't have. Okay. And um, fortunately for us, because, um, you know, uh, I just want to say that every time I open my mouth to give a Dharma talk, I, um, I realize that I'm wearing this robe. So it means that a lot of people think that a person wearing a robe, particularly a brown robe, particularly if they have like a little implement of some sort, is um, stating that they're an enlightened teacher. Now that would be making a false claim. No one is enlightened in that way, completely enlightened. And yet we have ideals about enlightenment 
And the wearing of the robe and the sitting on the Dharma seat equates you with um, someone who knows, a Buddha. And even some of our ceremonies say, uh, like when you ordain someone, there's this little statement, this last bit of hair is called the Shura. Only a Buddha can cut it off. Now I'm going to cut it off. Will you allow me to cut it off? And the person responds, yes. Which means you're standing as Buddha to that person, or you're accepting this other person in the role of Buddha. They're very, very easy to glom onto that in an idealistic way. And a lot of San Francisco Zen Center suffering <laughs> in the past has been because young people idealized a teacher. And then when they turned out to have human flaws, they could, you know. Um, there was no feedback until it got so egregious as to split off the relationship and, and um, you know, kill it off entirely. Um, so uh, I'm not saying that that was true of everybody, but I am saying that um, immature, um, an immature teacher-student situation is one in which there is no possibility of feedback about real issues. But the realist issue that wearing the robe and giving a Dharma talk brings up is that there's the implication that there's someone sitting in that seat who is awake, who is a Buddha to, every, to all the listeners who are doing this. And so, you know, as a teacher, I constantly have to consider that and what will normalize me as a human being so that horizontal transmission is also possible because without the understanding that we're all humans together, that um, trust of taking that seat of Buddha is invalid and false. Unless we know we're human, we can't actually be teacher and student. Unless my student can actually say, you are wrong and have us talk about it. Um, it's not a real relationship. Doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. I'm not saying that. That doesn't matter at all. So in some sense, if I, if I actually know that I'm um, making a false statement and I continue to make it and don't question it, then it's a Parajika offense. And it means I, I invalidate my, um, my Dharma position. I invalidate myself as a person among people expressing the Dharma, as a um, teacher among students expressing the Dharma. If I abuse um, that, uh, that idealistic uh, um, trust in that way. Suzuki Roshi said, don't destroy their beautiful dream of practice. And so this means a lot to me. But um, it's what's so interesting is that at that time, they didn't have, at that time in the Vinaya, it didn't say. But at this time, probably in the United States, we need a statement of what knowing or not knowing is. So have you heard the statement, uh, the statement by James Baldwin? 
innocence does not absolve you of the crime. Innocence is the crime. He was talking about racism. So when you have people saying, that's racist, or you're not awake, you're, you act that way towards, towards me, towards this whole group of people. And, and, um, and um, that's called, then you know. <laughs> if you don't know, if you, if you don't actually hear that feedback, you can't say you don't know. Do you know what I mean? You've been, you've been told. You, you have, that information has come to you from someone else. That is called denial. So that, that's what we don't have a rule about. We don't have a rule that if a whole group of people gives an institution or a group of people or you know, anyone real feedback about something as important as, but you're hurting me or you're killing me. And the person continues to say, no, I'm not killing you. This is good for you. I'm enlightened. Listen, that that is assuming a, a Dharma authority that we don't actually have. So, um, so what I'm saying is that the fourth turning of the Dharma wheel is about impact, is about history, is about power. Uh, it, that that uh, to see those topics um, in light of both the um, the uh, first turning and the second turning, and to actually hold the three spheres of the third turning in relation to the in relation to topics in relation not I shouldn't say topics in relation to the dynamics of giving and receiving feedback. Maybe the fourth turning that the United States of America, you know, uh, France, Great Britain, South America, Mexico, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the countries, um, the many countries who are receiving the Dharma within the past 50 years, um, in, in the majority view, because the Dharma has been with those countries for many, many years in the immigrant view. You know, this may be the fourth turning of the wheel. And actually that, this view of what the fourth turning of the wheel might be, that goes with what the, uh, many of the Tibetan lineages think the fourth turning is they think the fourth turning is the Vajrayana. So I wanna know why is this important? And um, I wanna go back to um, a conflict in China. A long time ago, there was a conflict in China between the Northern School and the Southern School, which you can read about in a, a book called the Platform Sutra. Okay, so there was a, a monk called Shen Xiu, who's a stand-in for the um, gradual school. And then there's a monk called Kui Nung, who's a stand-in for the sudden school. 
and Huineng ended up being our ancestor, the Southern School. Ended up being our ancestor. And of course, all the different dharmas um, go back and forth forever. And even on our lineage papers, it's very clear that the transmissions of many schools come together as our transmission. And it even says, this is the main point and it's exactly the same main point in this school, this school, and this school, and now it's your main point. So our lineage documents say this. Okay, so that's, that's clear. But I wanna say that we've retained a, I believe that we've retained a practical bias towards sudden awakening. And um, this, um, so I won't go through the whole story of uh, the, the, it's like an origin myth of, it's one of the origin myths of our particular lineage. And I won't go through the whole story, except that I think that we may have retained some of the kind of cultural and practical biases of that particular um, point of view. And we may be kind of devaluing historicity, his, his history, karma, and so on. So for instance, there's something really wonderful about being ordained and receiving a Dharma name. It's incredible. But what about the names that our parents gave us? Do we just dump them? So that's a, um, it's a question. There's something wonderful and interesting about seeing through our suffering. It's incredible. It's a real relief. But what about our suffering and the people our suffering the people who our suffering is involved with. What about that? You know, how do we express the entire truth of who we are? Where is the skill? So um, I do want to say that this dial, this particular dichotomy isn't just the property of the Chinese. It goes all the way back to the very beginnings of Buddhism. So um, if you read a book called the Abhidharma Kosha Bhashyam of Vasubandhu, there's this whole discussion about, um, well, you know, if there isn't a self, what carries causality? What, what, uh, what allows you, who, who gets enlightened? If there isn't a self, who gets enlightened? There's a whole huge discussion about it. You know, I could talk for like three years on this particular dichotomy and, um, what it means for us, body, speech, and mind. But I wanna say that um, the, um, the people who won out in that book, the Abhidharma Koshabashyam represents the teachings of the North Indians who had uh, a, a dialogue in Nalanda University for a thousand years before, um, before uh, the political climate of North India changed um, drastically with invasion and um, drought. So um, the Sarvastivadins explained um, causality um, uh, kind of descriptively and not prescriptively, but they, um, but uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, the Sarvastivadins did was um, to, to say that, um, that um, there is a, a kind of, um, it's not exactly a selfhood, but, uh, but a kind of a, um, 
uh, a kind of suchness, a suchness of each uh, dharma or element of experience. Each atom of experience has its own suchness. So they did say this. But there was a group of people called the Sotrantikas who, um, whose descendants are the Theravadins of today, the Vipassana lineage, who said that the dharmas don't have own being, that, that, that they're, they're, um, the character of moments of experience only occurs for as long as they're with us, not while they're forming and not while they're going away. So there was this huge um, disagreement that um, people tried to explaining it all sorts of ways. And uh, they try to explain what carries the causes of suffering, what carries the causes of awakening if there's no self. How does that happen? And so there's a lot of highly technical um, explanations for that. Are you with me? Is it okay? But I want to untechnify it. I want to untechnify it and just say, um, the concept of dharma or atoms of experience that both schools came up with has to do with the now, has to do with living in the now and noticing the complexity of experience that arises now. We can never really notice what happens now. We can only, our noticing happens later, a little teeny bit later, but later. So we can't really notice or experience what's happening now, only what's happened. We can only say what's happened a 16th of a second or so after it's happened, okay? In all of the uh, practices that we have. And that's called wisdom. But Zen practice emphasizes another side of practice as well. And it's not that the other schools don't emphasize it, but we emphasize it very strongly. It's even in the name, uh, one of the old names of our uh, school and our main practice. So we also emphasize, besides wisdom, we also emphasize compassion. So I looked up compassion, okay? And I found out that um, um, we have this word karuna for compassion, but there's also a word kripa for compassion. And what is the root of that word? It's uh, kri in Sanskrit. Kri is an interesting word uh, because it's also the root of the word karma, which means action. But it's also the root of the word krama. Krama means steps, stages, um, the order, the manner, or the progression. So uh, krama means gradual. Karma means action and history and its effects. Krama means steps, order, manner, or progress. Okay, in other words, gradualness. Krita means done. Kritam is what has to be done. Kritagya means grateful. So when we know how something was done, we are grateful when we acknowledge how it comes to us. Kripa is compassion. 
And so what, what I want to say, but I'm not gonna um, glom onto it too much, is that the Dharma side is wisdom. The karma side is compassion. And that we need to understand that our compassion links us with what has been done and what its results were, how it's been received. And that um, whether we, and that when we don't receive something, our wisdom is partial and our teaching is false to that extent. And when wisdom and compassion unite, when dharma and karma unite, then the teaching is alive. Then we can acknowledge how it comes to us. We can acknowledge and work with impact. And we can proceed on the path in a grounded and effective way. So I think that that's where I want to close. I just, I do want to just mention um, a couple of stories that uh, or sayings, but I'll just mention them and not like blab on about them. So some references. Um, uh, I want to talk about, uh, I want to just mention A. Hey Dogen, the founder of our school's teaching, um, uh, which uh, he was commenting on a phrase that said, all um, beings have Buddha nature. And his statement in response was, all beings, whole being, Buddha nature. So that's all beings, horizontal in space. Okay. So that's about Buddha nature, Pusho. And um, so what if karma were like that too? All times, whole time, Buddha nature. All impacts, whole impact, Buddha nature all communication, whole communication, Buddha nature, all history, whole history, Buddha nature. So um, a monk asked Jaojo, all things return to the one. What does the one return to? Jaojo, when I was in Jingzhou, I made a cloth shirt. It weighed seven pounds. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.